to a pleasure podcast for more from our sex podcast collective visit pleasurepodcasts.com this episode is sponsored in part by tracy's dog and don't let the name throw you off it's a super fun pleasure tool not some random person's dog go to tracysdog.com to order tracy's dog og pro 2 today and enter code s and s to get 15 percent off your purchase I first bought this pleasure tool way back when after I saw a viral Amazon review that included the customer saying, I'm pretty sure I levitated. It was an unending orgasm. This time my soul left me and God himself said, child, it is not your time. Go back to the little pink light. I'm brought back into my earthly body after managing to pull it off of me, throwing it across my bed. It falls to the floor, still buzzing happily away. I shook for a good five minutes. I couldn't get up off the bed even if I wanted to, and I stared at my ceiling dazed, trying to remember who I am and what year this is. All right, y'all, I can't promise levitation, but their new OG Pro 2 is definitely worth a try. It uses external sucking technology as well as has a curved internal feature that also hits your inside pleasure zones at the same time. I am a big fan. Go to tracysdog.com to order Tracy's Dog OG Pro 2 today and enter code S&S to get 15% off of your purchase. That is tracysdog.com. T-R-A-C-Y-S, tracysdog.com, and discount code S-A-N-D-S, S-A-N-D-S, to get 15% off of your OG Pro 2. And before you use it, make sure to get some towels ready. Trust me, you might need them. I don't know Tracy's actual dog, but I feel like she's a really good girl. Thanks for tuning in. Sluts and Scholars is a sex-positive, shame-free educational podcast where we try to help you talk smart and fuck smarter. While we love to give advice and resources, please note that this podcast or any emails from us are not intended to be therapy or a replacement for therapy. Welcome to Slutty Season, aka the theme this October and my favorite time of year. Just a reminder, I am running the show a little differently this season with a new theme each month, kind of like mini seasons. I am biased because I like them all, and I hope you will too. But don't forget, if you have a suggestion, you can always email us at slutsandscholars at gmail.com. Last month was Back to the Basics, and this month is Slutty Season, aka slightly more advanced pleasures. A little sluttier than September, with some scholarship too, of course. And remember, when I say slutty, I like past guest Dirty Lola's definition of it, which is that being slutty is being in love with your own sex life. I know there are so many archaic uses of the word as a derogatory term, but I, and hopefully all of you slutty scholar listeners, are taking it back. Enjoy. Welcome back to another week of Sluts and Scholars. I'm Nicoletta Heidegger, and I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist and sexologist. And this week, I am excited to welcome two guests. Uh, first up, we have Dr. Anna Randall. She is the co-founder and executive director of Tashra, the Alternative Sexualities Health Research Alliance, which you can find at tashra.org, an international nonprofit research and clinical healthcare training organization focusing on the lived experience of kink-involved BD and fetish individuals. She holds a doctorate in human sexuality, a master's in public health, and a master's in social work from Boston University. Such a slutty scholar. Uh, In addition to her work as a teacher, consultant, and researcher, she runs a private sex therapy practice in the San Francisco Bay Area. Uh, Joining her today is Kaylee Angle. She is the professional development services manager and communications coordinator at Tashra. She attended Lewis and Clark College for her undergraduate degree in international affairs and 
Ethnic Studies with an academic focus on global reproductive health and justice. Angle's thesis focused on how U.S. foreign policy affects abortion, so needed right now, uh, and other reproductive health policies abroad. Kaylee is currently located in Chicago, uh, and in the past, uh, she partnered with the William A. Percy Foundation, helping to create content for and build an educational website for parents of LGBTQ plus children. Her work centers reproductive justice, trauma-informed approaches uh, to care, and culturally competent sex education. Currently, she works as the communications and volunteer coordinator at the Chicago Women's Health Center. She is also a multidisciplinary artist who works with textiles, printmaking, and photography. What renaissance women we have today. Uh, Welcome, Kaylee and Dr. Anna Randall. Thank you. Thank you so much. So excited to be here. Okay, so we sort of said it a little bit in the bios, but uh, do you say Tashra or do you say the T-A-S-H-R? Okay. We use Tashra. We okay, use cool. Tashra. I feel like I was it's already... mouthful to say that all the time, you know? Yeah, that sounds like a kink in and of itself to just make me say that over and over. And if I get it wrong, <laughs> I'm in trouble. Um, okay, so uh, Anna, what is Tashra and wh- what are you all doing? What is Tashra? Um, Tashra is an organization we put together. My um, my founder, um, co-founder, and I, uh, Dr. Richard Sprout, and I put this organization together about um, ten years ago, because what we were seeing at the time was an upswing in the field of BDSM. We had been seeing this over the last 20, 30 years, but one of the things at the time there was not that much research. I mean, not that long ago, 10, 12 years ago, the amount of research being done in the area of kink was pretty small, and it was a pretty small number of people doing it. But Richard and I saw a real upswing happening. Um, And so what we wanted to do was uh, create a place where we could really focus in on research, but also focus in on the training of healthcare professionals who were providing therapy for folks that were involved in BDSM and kink. Because Mm -hmm. what we've seen over the last 10 years, and um, it's something that we at our organization really talk about a lot, is BDSM is really emerging as its own field of, of specialty. Mm-hmm. Um, much like what was happening with um, LGBT um, or LGBT at the time, um, uh, back in the 70s and 80s, only this is really happening in a really compressed amount of time. And so Tasha's has really um, been focused in on um, trying to um, enhance and um, uh, both um, access the people who've been out there working in this field, but also build more um, competency and more uh, cultural awareness mm-hmm. um, for clinicians, both mental health and physical health care providers on how to work with folks who are involved in BDSM, kink, fetish, um, and alternative sexualities. Why do you think we're seeing such an uptick in these numbers? Because I know that people have been kinky for always. So mm-hmm. I don't wouldn't necessarily say that there's more people, but maybe more people knowing what it is. Like, wh- why is there this uh, upswing, you think, happening? Um, there's lots of reasons, I think. I mean, we've got um, both um, uh, kind of the expansion of, I, 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 just, I sometimes think that television and the expansion of all of the different channels that we can watch media in um, really allows people to have a lot more opportunity to watch a lot more um, um, programming that may include stuff around BDSM and kink and the like. Um, I think that that's part of it. I also think we've, um, sometimes I say, I think we're built, we're fi- we're completing the 
cultural um, revolution, the sexual revolution that happened um, before AIDS um, really came in and put a, a major um, impediment there. Um, and um, although that's a little scary to say these days with the shift in um, the far right and, and the, the, the repressive ends of sexuality. But I really do think that there's a, a real upswing in individuals who really want to be able to express sexuality in its fullest extent. And BDSM and kink are one of the things that people often explore. Um, Kaylee, would you say there's other, well, what else might you say that you think is going on? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think that language um, is a big part of why we're seeing a lot of folks feel more comfortable being out or discussing kink. I think, um, like call them by their true names. I think once you can name something, you can really talk about it. And so I do think that the ability for folks to identify in such intentional and specific ways in terms of their interests, their identity, their community um, has been a huge, a huge part of that. And I think, of course, technology catalyzes that and, you know, diffuses it in this way where people are able to see language that resonates with them or describes their experience and then connect to those people uh, using different forms of social media or that kind of just display of your personhood, the more that, you know, each of us individually are given platforms um, and then able to describe ourselves. I think that's a huge part of why we're seeing people feel more comfortable talking about it and finding words to describe things that they couldn't describe themselves. I think that is also a big part of it as well. Yeah, I totally agree. I think for, for clients of mine, um, I've definitely seen more, more and more. And I think it's people felt these things before, but maybe like you said, now they have the words for it. And I think there's been, you know, more representations, um, in the media and then just more like accessibility, um, to be able to find that stuff and, and put the words to it. So I, I definitely agree with that. Um, you were mentioning media stuff and I, I want to hear from both of you on this, but maybe Kaylee, let's start with you. How do you feel about current media representations uh, not that you've seen all the media on kink or maybe you have if you're like really into that um but <laughs> what do you think of the current like mainstream media representations of kink and bdsm and do you have any favorites that you feel like get it a little more accurately oh geez as opposed to ac when it comes to accuracy i think that it's really all about um a lot of the language like by us for us i think a lot of journalism has really, really become accessible in a way that allows people to write for and by their community. And mm -hmm. I see BDSM in those forms of media taking a much more candid and actual representation of the ways that we see it ingrained in kink communities across the country. That being said, I mean, I think there are just certain tropes that we're still working our way you know, our way away from. I'm thinking about Julia Fox, for example, um, the editorial spread that she just did. Um, I think it's called Julia's Box um, <laughs> about her work as a dominatrix. Um, and it's very much like fashion meets BDSM, but it is also one of the more candid and accurate representations of that imagery and that lifestyle that I have seen at least in, you know, publications like Complex that are much higher on those tiers of publications. But I mean, you still see that trope of, you know, tired businessman and, you know, cat woman looking dominatrix. I mean, I'm thinking of like everything everywhere all at once that came out mm -hmm. a little earlier this summer yes. and how part of the, you know, beauty of that movie was all of the absurdity um, as it, you know, intertwined with itself. And, oh, and if you still... haven't seen it, you must. Rakakui. 
Yes, you absolutely must. Oh gosh. Yeah, I you have to strap it. yourself in and know where you're going. You have no idea where you're going when yeah. you start that movie. <laughs> yeah, it's gonna fuck you up a little bit, that's for sure. <laughs> yes, exactly. But I do think it is a testament. You know, that movie was like we're exploring some of the oddest things that your brain could conjure, and yet still there was that very um, I will say tired trope of white businessman needs the opportunity to be out of the you know driver's seat and have some woman tell him what to do. Um, not that that isn't a valid kink and a valid experience that many people explore. It's not the only um, one. <laughs> it's just not the only one. And it, yeah. So that would be my, like, my answer as far as some of the media that I've seen more recently. But I would also, Anna and I were discussing this briefly before the podcast. So I'd be curious to hear. Um, we were kind of debating about the mainstream, and I don't know. Yeah, if you want well, to I liked what that. you said too about the fashion piece as well, because I feel like now everyone and their mom has a collar and a harness, um, mm-hmm. and a lot of people wear that. And it's like I don't, you know, I don't want to be the gatekeeper to people's fashion and how they express themselves, but I do think it'd be nice to have a knowledge about those things before you're using them and kind of knowing their significance. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, Anna, what yeah. do you think about the media stuff? Um, it's interesting. I think the the writers and the producers are starting to get, they're really getting a lot of commentary on whether they're getting it right. Yeah, people they're, are not not uh, not lacking not trollship online. They're, yeah, they're really not tolerating it a whole lot anymore. And, and so um, I think when they are trying to make an attempt to try and show something like you show like bonding, or um, some of the other shows that come out, I think if they get it wrong, they get in a they get a lot of heat for it. And so the shows that care are actually trying to um, even retool themselves in their like second season to get more get it more get more accurately. And I think cool. now that people are hiring more intimacy coordinators, and yeah. my, and if you don't know what that is, go back to my episode with um, Aaron Tillman um, from last month. But I also think that yeah, people are hiring more intimacy coordinators and. I might be biased because of the intimacy coordinators I know, but they're like all kinky. (laughs) So I think the hope is that people are hiring kink and BDSM informed intimacy coordinators and they're hiring more of them. And so hopefully that will just come through. I mean, it's kind of like the show, you know, how to build a sex room. And I, um, you know, there's so much about that show I love, but there's also things in there that where consent is really questionable in there, where she brings people into a, you know, BDSM scene, or she brings them to a dominatrix. And there are, there have been times during that show where the participants have been a little bit like, what? Like, I'm not sure. Like, huh? Yeah. You can tell it's like for the, for the show. Yeah. And, and my sense is, you know, is, you know, that's, then I start to question about whether or not the consent on the part of the producers for the people participating in that show was really clear for the individuals, which is so much about what we're all about is consent and and about, about negotiation. And so even though I love so much of that show, um, there's elements of that that are just like, Oh, really, really? Mm -hmm. Do we have to, do we have to really wrestle with that still, Yeah, you know, in a show that's really supposed to be about couples and, and throuples and, Morples trying to figure out how to have sex um, sexuality in their in their homes feel really authentic to them. I think the things that I want to see more of, and and some things have done this. I can't think of any really off the top of my head, but even for all it did in a shitty way, there were some scenes of this in Fifty Shades of Grey. (laughs) (laughs) But I I think seeing more of the um, sensual kink and BDSM, there's still there's still this trope even in in all the media where it's like. Um, really dark dungeon intense you know there's a lot of uh yeah it's like over overwhelming and like it can be those things but seeing more of like a 
a sensual approach to it that doesn't involve like pain and doesn't involve whips and floggers and whatever else. Um, I would like to see more of that. And then I'd like to see it, um, them showcase scenes or intimate partnerships that have more of a, a 24 seven dynamic mm-hmm. where they show those little like micro kink experiences that isn't just related to sex. Yes. Um, these are the two things I would love to see more of. I think, I, I, go ahead, oh, sorry. Go ahead. I think that's a really interesting point. And I think to, um, Anna's point that she was making, or I think it was you, Nicoletta, just like the reason they brought those couples into those rooms potentially un- in an unconsenting way yeah. was for shock value. And so I'm thinking about more sensual and maybe like less tool and like, you know, supply forward representations of kink. You can't expect the audience to register that as such. Like our brains are not, you know, the majority of folks' brains are not coded yeah. to think of kink that way. So you would really need to initiate some conversations that really challenge people's understanding of what it means to be kinky because i think to be caressed and to be spoken to softly and to be held are fundamental pieces of kink scenes yet we don't under most people do not understand that and so you would just you would have to rewrite the conversation which is a big part of what tasha tries to do but the (laughs) we're here in a podcast with folks that are seeking this content mm-hmm. and then you think about the myriad of folks that attend a movie theater and i'm just really i married to this movie you know metaphor for whatever reason but you <laughs> think about all of the different kinds of people that are in that theater and all of the different ways that they're like they interact with their own sexuality and yeah. shame which is a huge part of like kink and just understanding why that community and their health is so important yeah. um but yeah i just don't think people would get it <laughs> well, and, and it really does nicoletta one of the things that we're always struggling with as researchers is the area of like what is kink like what is it mm. right yeah and so, um and and that definition for those of us in the in the research and academic field is is an ongoing conversation it's yeah really how, how are you currently whenever operationalizing we, this whenever we take it to, whenever we take <laughs> what's called an irb when we take it to this institutional outside institutional review board that has to look at any of our research protocols before mm-hmm. we put them out there um you know if we we're coming to a, a a kind of savvy group they kind they they kind of slide it by a little bit because oh yeah we know what that means right but when we take it to an independent group they're like what give us a yeah, define this variable right and what we we generally end up falling um as researchers we end up often falling towards behavior um and you know so the idea is like it's you know for some people kink is a behavior for some people kink is an identity and for some people it's you know, there's a whole field out there called serious leisure and on this idea that you know people strongly identify with a with a sort of um an activity that they do that they really put their hearts and souls into um you know people who are uh you know mountain climbers for instance people who are um knitters for instance you know i've never things- heard this term i like serious leisure yeah mm-hmm. it's almost fascinating there's actually a journal of serious leisure out there um and they've written some really fascinating and wonderful articles about this and serious leisure is a we've kind of adopted it as one of our more favored ways to describe the people who are really very 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 into bdsm and kink but might not necessarily identify themselves as this is my orientation but it's something that 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 i am deeply and keenly involved in and care it's like a core part of who i am but it wouldn't necessarily be how I would decide, describe myself as an orientation. 
right? And so the battle always in the research area is people are always saying, well, is it a, is it what, which, what is it, right? Is it an orientation? Is it, you know, what is it a behavior? Is it a practice? Is it right? Mm -hmm. And And the challenge with that is as researchers is that um, BDSM is not recognized as a sexual minority. So when you look at the sexual minorities that are listed... Oh, see, I recognize it as a sexual minority. I know, but the federal government does not. And so when the federal government looks at what is a sexual minority, um, they're looking at gender, they're looking at sex, uh, you know, or sexual um, orientation. That's what they're looking at is orientation. Yeah. And so the challenge that we've had is that... um, it's difficult for researchers to go and um, try and um, fund some of the research that they're doing or programs that they're doing because we don't fall under that rubric because the, which is, which is really scary and unfortunate. I mean, I don't want to compare marginalized communities and say like that kink deserves to be there more than and others and can compare that. But I also know that kink and BDSM practices have been used against people yes. in like child, um, childcare cases and divorce courts and things like that. So like, then it should, there should be protections, right? Right. And, and so there's so much happening in the field right now. I mean, if you talk to the folks at National Coalition for Sexual Freedom, Susan Wright and all of those folks, they've been, they have been foundational in, in this new, um, in this new, um, uh, which the name of which is escaping right this second, but this national. new um, uh, this new regulation that they're trying to work through the states around um, assault. Kaylee, if you can find the name of that actual the title of that, it would be great. But um, and so you know, there's so much happening right now around the protection of individuals or who often are um, brought in for assault and battery and the like. There's also stuff happening at the, where we're trying to work on establishing this idea of sexual um, health, my health disparities. When you look at the federal government and what they consider to be the things that differentiate um, minority populations Mm -hmm. um, from health disparities is one of the key things they look for. What are the, what are the, the, health problems that this population uh, that may be related to being a part of this population Mm. and our work with in um over the last seven or eight years in our research has been on identifying some of those health disparities the challenge is we don't want to do that in such a way that pathologizes this community even more oh that's so hard right but yet at the same time if we can understand what are some of the um the issues that what happen as a result of being a part of a marginalized community or minority stress, which is similar to what LGBT folks go, have go, go through and has been documented for years, then we have more opportunity to both help um, individuals who work with these populations understand that this is not from a place of these people are sick or that they have some sort of underlying pathology, but that part of this comes from being being in a marginalized group where you have to hide who you are and that mm-hmm. that alone can cause health can cause health. minority stress correct absolutely oh interesting yeah do either of you have any i guess tips or ways that you're navigating this balance of like not uh further stigmatizing but also like helping highlight the health and well-being of kinky folks because i think 
Um, that is the reason why there has been a lot of missing research and why I think sometimes these communities have been hard to research is because a lot of people within them don't want to feel like they're being put under a microscope or judged or whatever. So like, how, how, how are we finding this balance? I mean, I think that it really boils down to the folks who are leading and conducting the research and the fact that a lot of Tashra's team identify with like our values. Like you said, nothing I, about us without us. Kind of exa- exactly. I think a big part of it being that the stories that we're hoping to hear others tell are ones that we are learning to tell about ourselves, or the ones that we are learning to navigate through the world. And I just think a big... It took us three years <laughs> to finalize this study. And a big part of that is because we needed to make sure that it was entirely representative of the myriad of experiences, maybe rather not representative, but left space for the myriad of experiences that folks have and the opportunity for people to tell their story. We wanted it to feel like an exciting way for folks to explore their relationship to kink. We didn't want this study or participating in this research to feel like a burden. We want to make sure that you can see the other end of the bridge where your story impacts you and those like you and those in your community. And a big part of that is because our personal stories and our personal identities are what led us to do this work um, and give us the opportunity to hold ourselves accountable um, in a way that is integral to conducting any sort of research, especially if, you know, considering the way that a lot of medical and mental health and psychological research has harmed a lot of marginalized communities and continues to harm marginalized communities there for good reason. And a lot of communities is not a lot of trust towards academic research structures. Um, And it's really important to hold that as a constant. Thank you so much to our other sponsor, Coral. Coral is an easy-to-use, science-based app that improves your intimate life. Coral helps couples feel closer and communicate more effectively and helps single people create deeper intimacy with themselves. Visit mycoral.co slash S&S to download Coral and begin creating deeper intimacy with yourself and or your partner today. I actually just used the app with my partner last weekend on a road trip, and I have also been referring clients to this app before they even sponsored the podcast. I think it's a really great tool and resource because maintaining connection with yourself and your relationships definitely takes time and effort. Coral makes it easier and helps me stay accountable in my pleasure journey. Coral has these three amazing features. Connection, which is a secure encrypted chat space for couples where Coral helps guide the conversation with prompts to build heat, connection, and communication skills. They also have guided audio exercises and discussion forums. Visit mycoral.co slash S&S to download Coral and begin creating deeper intimacy with yourself and your partner today. The link is in the episode description. That is mycoral.co slash S&S, M-Y-C-O-R-A-L dot co, C-O slash S&S to start using Coral today. The link is in the episode's description, mycoral.co slash S and S. And that link again is in the episode's description. Now back to the episode. Yeah. And sometimes that's harm in a conscious way, but a lot of times I see it in like an unconscious way of just healthcare providers and things not having information about this and then harming in that indirect way. You mentioned the study. Let's, let's talk about the study. So y'all are doing an international kink health study. Mm -hmm. Um, Kaylee, tell me what are some of the things that y'all have found maybe so far or are looking at about 
yeah, about the health and well-being of kinky folks. Because obviously we know there's this old trope that like, if you like to get spanked, you're fucked up and have daddy issues, which like may be true, but uh, <laughs> it's, you know, let's, let's, uh, let's talk about it. Well, I think one of my favorite, you know, findings at least. So to be clear, we are um, currently collecting um, data and recruiting participants for our international kink health study. Um, oh, can but- our listeners uh, join in? Yes, they absolutely can. If you're interested to find out if you're eligible for our international kink health study, you can visit um, www.kinkhealth.org. Um, and you can also find us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and FetLife for those who are on there um, at either Kink Health or Tashra. And all of those places, um, we will be met with information about our study and how you might be eligible to participate. Um, but I... I think that one of the things that we have noticed, um, and the data that I'll be referencing now is from a study that we conducted in 2015 and 16 called the Kink Health Study. So it was not international, um, but it was of a very similar variety. Exactly. No, actually, it was the Kink Health Survey. Oh, pardon me, Anna. Thank you. God, communications coordinator. Come on. Like the way we talk about like, there's the survey, then there's the study. Right. Exactly. Yeah. A lot of, you know, yes, a lot of communications details. Absolutely. I feel like um, I can tell, I can tell some about y'all's kinks just in the way that you, in the way that you talk and interview. I, I wonder if it correlates. <laughs> oh, geez. Um, <laughs> well, I, um, I will say, um, and I guess I'll just speak to something that struck me the most in terms of reviewing literature from the kink health survey, because I was not a part of that project, um, <laughs> is, the variance um, when it came to folks' answers to questions about how they feel comfortable or if they feel comfortable talking to their care providers about their kink um, and to the, like a similar end, if it was important to them that their care provider understood or had the capacity to meet them where they were at regarding their kink. Um, and just the value that folks spoke to in being able to be met with compassion and understanding. And it also often wasn't exclusive to, they need to know exactly what I'm talking about. They need to understand all of the kinks. It was just to be met with patience, curiosity, and compassion, and the you know disposition to understand your client um, was a huge, hugely important thing for a lot of the folks who filled out our 2016 survey. Um, and just what that says a lot about to me is that the kink community is ready and eager to receive care, is ready to talk to people about who they are um, as long as they can do it in a safe way. And I would also love to invite you as someone who has tirelessly read through that material um, to please share some more you know, details from our findings. I think, that w- I think one of the things that we, um, it w- related to what Kaylee was just talking about, about healthcare experiences, is that um, what one of the things we discovered our, our 2016 data was um, our um, the data set was about a thousand people and it was it was oh. national we we kept it to within the United States at um, that that 2016 study um, but one of the, one of the things we found is that um, individuals who um, often anticipated that they would have a problem with their healthcare providers often did not have a health. They, there was an anticipated um, fear. Mm. But when they got in, many of them reported that they did not necessarily experience the stigma. 
However, when people had stigmatized experiences, they were not necessarily pleasant, right? And a lot of them came from slut shaming. A lot of it was slut shaming um, or the idea that someone would come in, want a panel of STIs, they would be kind of grilled about the fact that, you know, you have multiple partners and therefore, you know, uh, why are you doing this? And they would feel this sense of like, can I trust this provider? Mm -hmm. um, in the cases of things like um, accidents or um, or injuries that were um, incurred, and that was a really fascinating part of our research back then, was that for the most part, the, re the, the damage or the um, injuries that people um, got as a result of their BDSM experiences were primarily through bondage. And a lot of those were nerve damage, um, often mm. short term nerve damage. So in other words, somebody would be tied up for too long, not tell a part, you know, tell their And partner. they got some neuralgia. They yeah. got some neuralgia as a result of it, a pinched nerve. Often it resolved, right? Um, bondage. And what that said to us is, you know, when you talked about how, to, you know, how do you communicate and work on non-pathologizing? the thing Yeah, like you don't need to call like... I guess there's nothing if you're two adults, but like, it doesn't have to mean that there's domestic violence going on, but someone mm -hmm. being, being right. able to be like, I got this injury from Shibari and for right. your practitioner to be able to talk to you about just as if you got it riding a bike. Well, in the, in the reality is when we talk to healthcare providers, they generally don't really care how people get injured. They just care about whether you're injured and how, how can I help? Right. So they're they're often if the if the provider is actually getting into a kind of curiosity or a kind of um, uh, get a little voyeuristic about it. Mm -hmm. um, you know, if that's your care provider, that's your regular care provider, you might really think about, is that the care provider that I want to stay with? Yeah. Or do I want to educate? Because that was one of the big things that came up too, is that people get tired of educating their healthcare providers, whether it's a mental health care provider yes. or their physical health care provider. But if you're showing up in the ER, ER doctors see everything and so <laughs> they're not, they're not necessarily too uh, worried about like how exactly you got that as a result of perhaps fisting or as a result of some sort of a, um, a damage to like bruises on your breasts and the like, they really want to know, um, you know, how serious it is. Was it consensual? That's the big thing they want to know, right? Because healthcare providers, unlike many, not all, but many mental health providers are, um, they are mandated reporters. So if they think that there's a domestic violence situation going on, they have to report. So the big thing is if you're walking in with an injury, you want to be able to let the provider know that this was consensual, that this was something that if they don't understand it or expect it, we had a wonderful story several years ago of uh, being at a kink event and this, this person ran up to us and she was all excited. And she said, Oh my God, I'm so excited to see you, you guys. I can't believe you, you all kind of saved my life. I was in a mm -hmm. ER in, um, in Wyoming, I believe I had, um, had been at a kink event. I had had a bunch of bruises and then I came down with a horrible flu when I went to see my family in Wyoming, ended up at the emergency room. And the minute they saw my bruises, they, they started with the questions. Exactly. Yeah. And they're, they, they, you know, took my, um, my partner and moved them out of the room and et cetera. Mm. And so they, there they were, they pulled up our website, they pulled up one of our brochures, which is how do you talk to your healthcare provider about kink? Mm. And because the people in this Wyoming hospital had no idea what this was. And by able, by being able to show them this brochure that we had, they normalized what they were experiencing. They let them see that this was real. 
Yeah. And that helped the individual feel like, wow, I have more agency here. And it also helped it be a teaching moment um, for the provider, you know, so that 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 person may go, oh, my God, I could never do that. But at least um, it might be like they might get squicked. But at the same time, they may walk away from it going, well, I learned something today. And this person told me it was consensual. And now I, I recognize like, oh, gee, this doesn't have to be something that's so scary. Yeah. I mean, I want people to go check out that um, pamphlet. That sounds amazing. But any quick tips from there for folks listening um, to talk to their healthcare provider? I mean, I would say as a healthcare provider, a mental healthcare provider, um, looking on people's websites to see, you know, are are they kink informed? Are they kink and BDSM informed? I mean, most of my, a lot of my clients come see me because I am. And like you said, they're tired of going to a therapist that is either voyeuristic or thinks that all of their problems come from that and are trying to like fix that or just like don't understand. So the, the session ends up becoming like a education from the client. Um, and so, you know, there's a difference between when people say, um, like kink aware versus kink informed and just really asking those questions about well, what kind of training do you have? Are you just listing that there? Cause you're saying you're non-judgmental or do you actually have experience with this? Um, and, and feeling, yeah, feeling like the power to ask that in those initial calls, obviously it's different if it's an emergency room situation, but if you're sort of vetting a healthcare provider, but that's really tough, right? Cause a lot of us have to just get assigned the person through our insurance. That's the most affordable, um, and might not feel like we have a choice. So any tips on bringing it up on, on talking that, you know, give people a little tease of that pamphlet. Kaylee, go for it. Talk about our, what we do and how we talk to clinicians about it. Yeah, absolutely. Well, so well, I guess for, like this is more for the client, right? This is like someone walking into a visit. Um, but first of all, you know, it's really important to consider if it is your first visit um, that medical histories are not all inclusive and they are often not competent in the sense that right. they treat us as the holistic and complicated and individuals that we are. Yeah. Are you sexually um, active? Yes. No. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Right. And what right. does that um, mean exactly? Yeah, right. <laughs> right. Right. Oh my gosh! I mean, there's like. I mean, medical. Like, no, I haven't had penetration, but I've been like, you know, crawling around on the ground on my knees, acting like a puppy for 10 years. Like, yes, I'm sexually active. (laughs) Exactly. I mean, that's exactly what I was going to say. There's, you know, no room for the idea of non-penetrative sex when it comes to a medical history. But I would, in your first visit, I, uh, I would take the opportunity to think about your medical history as a chance to communicate more thoroughly about yourself um, and take the time um, to spend time on like items on that history that help you to inform that provider of the ways that your physical, sexual, mental, um, romantic life intersects with your physical health. So like take the opportunity to talk about your number of partners. And if you feel comfortable, you can talk about you know, the fact that one of them is your primary partner and the others you play with in a certain capacity, but any sort of information that you can provide. And to that same end, a first visit is going to be one of the lengthier ones that you have with a care provider. Um, Unfortunately, in our medical system, uh, visits are quite short when it comes to visiting your doctor. So I would say prioritize, prioritize what you came to the doctor to talk about. Um, And that can often make you feel like you don't have the time to explain all of the important details that are in like a part of your health, but for the sake of being able to communicate your immediate needs, mm-hmm. um, be clear on what you came there for. 
for. And if there are details that you need to provide about the context of your sexual orientation, about the context of your play, include those, but really prioritize your health in that moment. Um, I I would, I would add to that then, because that, I mean, we're three people who maybe I would assume feel very comfortable or have gotten more comfortable talking about this stuff. And for folks who are um, still feel shame or live in a place where it feels like it's more conservative or whatever, like that can feel really scary and not just emotionally, but feeling scared for their physical safety. I mean, who knows? Um, and so Especially I think then part of another oppressed, um, an oppressed or, or marginalized yes. community. Yes. Uh, makes it even harder. Yes, absolutely. That having that double minority stress intersection. And so I think then maybe the first step for folks listening with that would be talking to a, you know, kink informed therapist to work through some of that so you can get to a place where you can advocate for yourself at the healthcare provider. One of the things that the research also shows is that, is that if you are an individual who has already come out in one area, so in other words, let's say you have come out as trans, you have come out as gay, you have come out as something a furry whatever the the once you've gone through one coming out process the the next coming out process is a little bit easier for the most part mm. and so what we find is that individuals who have gone through a coming out process when we do the when we go through our research data what we find is those individuals are feel more comfortable talking to their healthcare providers um, because they've already gone through a coming out experience, a coming out process. And coming out as kinky is, you know, I think uh, people are sometimes surprised by the fact that um, coming out as kinky is such an emotional experience for people because the first person you've got to come out to is you. Mm. Right. And so for years um, I hosted a, a, a um, once a month um, event in San Francisco for the Society of Janus, um, where it was kind of an um, just an opportunity for a roundtable where people could just show up at, um, at the Wicked Grounds in San Francisco, a kinky coffee shop. And um, it was amazing how often people would sit down there and they could be 22 or they could be 72. And just to sit in a room and turn around and actually admit that you have these, these desires and these urges and these things, it was an enormous step for many people. Mm-hmm. So the, what you're saying, Nicoletta, is so true about if you, if, you know, you've got to practice it a little bit sometimes. Coming out to your healthcare provider may feel really frightening because you may be really concerned about what might happen. And some people's concerns are really big because if they've got kids, if they are a teacher, if they have, if they live in a part of the country where um, they they can't kind of walk around being kinky um, as easily as you might be able to in walking, you know, down Folsom Street in San Francisco. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Right. Um, individuals may feel really terrified that yeah. if they're going to say something that it's going to end up in their fo- in their folder, it's going to mm-hmm. end up getting someplace. And what we you know try and talk to people about is just that idea of like being able to practice this so that you can feel comfortable and be good with yourself first about, you know, working around the shame issue or the issue of self-acceptance here. Mm-hmm. Just because you're kinky doesn't mean there's anything wrong with you. You know, it's a part of your sexual repertoire. It's a part of your sexual map. For many people, this has been with them. The data seems to show that um, at least a third, if not more, of people have had their first kink experience or their kink interest before the age of 12. Um, and so for those people, this is it's a core part of how they've uh, constructed what's what's erotic for them. Yeah. And for people listening who are trying to shame that, I'm imagining you're also talking about it doesn't have to the pre-12 thing doesn't have to be like sex 
we're not talking necessarily sex or assault, but mm. something that happened oh. where you were like, oh man, uh, I really liked that song where they talked about being chained naked on the floor, like interesting, <laughs> or like, oh, we were playing cops and robbers and like someone yeah. pinned me down and like, whoa. <laughs> I mean, I, yes. I was, I mean, I've been kinky since I was four years old. How did you, oh, would you mind answering how you knew? I knew because when I was a little kid, I used to go downstairs into the basement of my house and I used to get, I'm a super early riser, still are to this day. I would go down and I used to watch really, really old TV shows um, and movies. And the thing I used to watch what is like really old is um, Flash Gordon, the old Flash Gordons from the 1930s. Like I love old movies and stuff uh-huh. and the early flash gordon stuff which is pre-1935 which is when the you know when there was um the 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 act that really changed the 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 sexuality and all of the kinds of rules around that those had unbelievably sexual content in them and had kind of people with whips and chains and i would watch old tarzan movies back you know i loved old black and white movies when i was a kid and so i would watch those things and that's when i started re- recognizing that's the stuff i was totally uh, like excited to watch mm-hmm. but i didn't understand it because i thought there was something wrong with me i was a good catholic mm-hmm. girl i yeah. thought that, like i was possessed by the devil you know i didn't uh, know why i had all this sad. Stuff, right yeah. But it and and then one could argue, like, I would feel like someone who's shaming could argue that, like, well, the fact that you watched that as a kid is what messed you up. And that's why that's why you have issues or whatever, versus the shame and stigma of having these desires because people aren't talking about it is what causes some of the issues, really. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I think that's actually something really interesting. Thank and, you and for sharing that, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> I think you got to send me a list of your fave movies oh, so okay. I can go watch these. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> What were you saying, uh, Kaylee? No, yeah. Um, Anna, please correct me if I'm wrong, but my understanding is that from our 2016 survey, we did not find a, like a notable correlation between childhood trauma and folks who were interested in kink. Like not yeah. really significant at all. So even just like that myth, like do our childhood selves influence our sexuality and also like every other part of our person? Absolutely. And is that something that's incredibly important to explore and consider? Yes, but do we see a correlation between childhood trauma and kink interest in adults, at least in our data now? And the data that's been out there, I mean, nobody has really, there. there's a few little studies here and there that try and show some sort of connection, but at the same well, time- Well, as we know, think, correlation does not equal causation. Causation, right? But, <laughs> but I think I, I, you're, you are my kind of geek. I love this. You're my kind of geek. But I think that the important thing around that is is understanding that there are lots of people with childhood trauma who aren't kinky. Mm-hmm. And then there are people with childhood trauma who are kinky. Yeah. So mm-hmm. why are some people who with tra- childhood trauma kinky and some other? If it was so, if it was so um, important, then wouldn't all the people with childhood trauma all be kinky? They're not. Mm. So there's there's other maybe they should be. It could be very healing. <laughs> well, yeah, absolutely. And for a lot of people, kink is a very transformative experience for people. It's for many people, it's how they claim back agency. It's how they claim back their sexuality. It's how they claim back trauma. Because if I, I yeah. can have an out, if I can have a positive outcome, and somebody turns to me and says, "Good girl" or "Good boy" or "Good toy," um, at the end. I may feel like, oh my gosh, my embarrassment that I experienced as a kid, I don't have that embarrassment anymore because now I've gotten this really positive experience from somebody who loved the fact that I crawled across the floor and ate out of a dog bowl and thought that was the hottest thing ever. And 
or or loved me up because I'm a big full-sized person and thought that was the most erotic and wonderful thing in the world and said how beautiful you are. Mm-hmm. Right. And th- for that, that can be enormously, enormously. Yeah, corrective for sure. Yeah. Um, have you uh, last kind of question before we start to wrap up, but have you had done any research or have any findings on, I guess, the upside, right? I know we're talking about like, um, are we correlating any like negative mental health things, but like, are we seeing any data in what you're saying of the health benefits um, of engaging in a kink practice? I think one of the things to really understand is the importance of community. That I think one of the powerful things that people get out of BDSM um, is this idea of community. This idea of being- well, that that is the key thing to combat minority stress, right? Right. And so, one positive thing that we see out of BDSM, um, we did part of our analysis for the, the 2016 data, um, is that we took Carol Reif's well-being. Uh, Carol Reif has got a, a wonderful matrix for looking at well-being, and um, what we found is that you know individuals really the the sense of belonging was really incredibly important for people. Um, that that isn't a powerfully important thing around feeling like um, I've kind of come to this place where I felt othered, and now that I feel like I've found a community around me where I feel like I belong. The other thing is that for many people, BDSM and kink is a way to um, build and uh, develop agency, um, Mm -hmm. both sexual agency and personal agency. Mm -hmm. Another piece is this idea of negotiation, the idea of being able to learn consent. And and BDSM, I mean, those of us around this field know that Kink and BDSM has so much to teach the general population about consent, about how to talk about consent, how to talk about sex, just mm-hmm. to be able to debrief or to be able to talk in advance of a, of a, of yeah, a what you want and what you like. And yeah. And I'm, I really am clinging to the piece that you said about agency, Anna, because I really do think when we are having extensive conversations about consent, when we're having extensive negotiations about our interests, how they align, why we should be seed partners, why we should be play partners at all. It's an opportunity for you to learn about why you're interested in the things that you are. And I'm not saying that it's going to spell itself out perfectly every time, but it really does give you the opportunity to explore your relationship to yourself in the way that you choose to relate with others. And then there's also like solo kink, right? So then there's also like the way that you relate to yourself and the way that you experience sensory activities as like on your own. Um, And I think a lot about consent in the ways that just one thing that's been on my mind a lot is with the COVID-19 and with the pandemic is um, I'm really curious to see if people's ability to discuss like STIs and STDs will be impacted by our need to negotiate our COVID COVID exposure. Yeah. I really have been thinking about this for so long is we're starting to see consent make its way into other scenes, obviously influenced by kink folks laying a lot of the ground there. Um, But just conversations about consent more generally and how that's becoming more fluid. I just really want to make sure that the values that were developed alongside that within the kink community get carried as that importance makes its way into other, other areas of our world. I mean, when were marginalized folks ever given the, uh, I guess the credit for things that they've helped helped with society. So fingers crossed. But, yeah. Uh, here's, here's, here's to hoping. Here's yeah, hoping. But, yeah. We've got, we've got more evidence now and more social media stuff so we can get more credit. That's for sure. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. 
Well, thank you so much for joining and and for the work that you do. Um, How can folks uh, follow what you're doing, uh, get in touch? Uh, I know you mentioned already the the study, not the survey. Uh, (laughs) um, Yeah. Any, anything to, uh, to promote? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, just to to say a little bit more about the, you know, the international King health study, it's an opportunity for us to learn more about the experience, the well-being, the health, both physical and mental of folks who are kinky, who folks, folks who might think that they're kinky and don't know yet folks who definitely have fantasized about certain things that might be considered kinky, but don't identify that way. Kind of like similar to the serious leisure we were talking about. Um, really just, I invite you to see if you're eligible. Um, it's an opportunity to explore your own story, to tell your story and benefit some really, really important research. Um, but as opposed, uh, sorry, when it comes to following us, um, I would say that Instagram and Twitter are really great ways to make sure that you keep up with what's going on at Tashra. Um, our handle on both of those is Kink Health. Um, post in a lot of information, educational, and a lot of um, training opportunities for mental health professionals. So for those looking for CEUs, um, Tashra might be your place. Yes. Uh, I know my friend just attended a, a great one on kink and neurodiversity. So there's all kinds of things out there would, would recommend. And the, and the mm. thing that we pride ourselves on at, at Tasha is not just the one-on-one. Lots, there's lots of one-on-one out there these days. What we try and do is we really try to, de- to delve deeply when we're working with um, clinicians, mental and physical health care clinicians around helping them understand and work with the, this population is to really delve into the much deeper topics whether it's, you know, complex structures of relationships or neurodiversity, like you just saw, we just, um, we just, um, we've got all kinds of t- Kaylee's, our communications person is always um, coming up with amazing graphics that we put out onto our, on, onto our ads about our, of our classes. But our intention is to really um, um, not just give you the little bit of the shallow idea of what this is, but to be able to have classes where we can delve deeply into the psychological um, and the social issues. And then we also provide courses and we do classes for the community. We have an upcoming one this fall, um, which we did last year, which is um, uh, Ask a Kink Doctor. And we're going to be having a physician talk about some of the the core issues that come up in in healthcare settings. And we're going to probably do a monkeypox update and some stuff around um, just uh, what's current and new around um, a variety of healthcare issues so that kinky people don't just have to talk to each other, which is often where people in the kink community go to ask about health is they go to the community. And the community has been great in being able to be that, but we'd like to continue to enhance more information that's um, available to buy health providers for kink community so that they can feel like they can get really, um, really solid, good health information out there. Yeah. Oh, well, thank you so much, uh, Dr. Anna and Kaylee for, for joining. Um, again, listeners, if you want to follow what I'm doing, I'm on Instagram at Sluts and Scholars, on Twitter at Sluts Scholars. You can listen anywhere you get your podcasts, including slutsandscholars.com. Please don't forget to rate and review and check out those advertiser discounts. And if you are one of those uh, kinky, slutty scholars tuning in, definitely would recommend checking out uh, this upcoming awesome study. Thanks so much, Kaylee and Dr. Anna. Thank you. Thank you, Nicoletta.